When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies and in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Mini Sonia, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Manny Padilla Jr. Manny Padilla Jr. has over 36 years of professional writing experience in the media and publishing worlds, working as a newspaper reporter and editor, marketing, public relations, and advertising professional, and he's also been a public speaker. He's written pieces which have appeared in the Los Angeles Times and other publications. He was also a regular columnist for the Los Angeles Daily News. We are here today to discuss his book, Coconut, which discusses the life of a Latino family, the Rodrigos, in the Los Angeles of the 1960s and 70s. It has been published by Ex Libris Publishing in 2021. Mr. Padilla, welcome to the show. Thank you, Minnie. It's uh, great to be here, and I want to thank you and the New Books Network um, for having me here today. In the introduction to your book, Coconut, Brown on the Outside, White on the Inside, you remind us of how one of the signifiers of Latinos is la familia, the family. You yourself were born in the 1960s to Mexican parents and barely spoke any Spanish till the 1980s after you started working in a non-profit mental health agency. Tell us about your own life and the forced assimilation, in your words, of your family and others like you in American society. Right. Well, I'm a third generation Latino American, um, and there are 42 million Latino baby boomers in America, many that have had experiences similar to me. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles area uh, during the 60s and 70s, and it was a, a great time of change within America. We had the civil rights movement um, that focused mainly on um, African-Americans. We had all the work that Martin Luther King did, but this was also a great change, time of change for other minorities. So for Latino people, we had Chicano power, we had Brown power. So there there was a lot of of upheaval in America. Um, And when I grew up, America was a different place than it is today. Um, we've always had this philosophy of being the great melting pot, but as different cultures have experienced over um, great periods of time in America, that that melting pot kind of inv- includes a lot of assimilation, um, and uh, they weren't very accepting of other cultures in America. You were not allowed to speak Spanish when I was growing up. So consequently, I'm a Latino that doesn't speak a lot lot of Spanish. Um, there was also a great deal of prejudice. 
and um, that I've experienced throughout my life. Um, it's gotten better, but as we saw the past few years under the previous administration, that kind of surfaced to the top again. We had a lot of racial issues come up that had been buried in the past. Um, so growing up, probably my first experience with with prejudice is actually the the introduction to my book, Coconut. Um, and legally, my name is Manuel Padilla Jr. So if you're going to Google my book, it will come up under, under Manuel Padilla Jr. So Coconut, the introduction um, is a little boy and he's in a park in a merry-go-round. And this is a true story. Actually, I was like three years old, I think, when this happened. And, and um, a little girl calls him a beaner. Now, a beaner is a derogatory term to describe uh, a Mexican-American or a Latin person. So this little boy, you can imagine a three or four-year-old being called beaner, 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 and it wasn't in a nice way, um, and he doesn't understand what that means. But he understands that the, the person yelling at him is angry with him. So he begins to question, did I do something wrong? Did I do something to make this person angry that they would call me this word? So the character um, goes to his mother and says, what's a beaner? And she said, well, where did you hear that? And he's like, this little girl called me that. Um, and so the mother doesn't want to have any confrontation. Um, so she tries to avoid the confrontation. The little boy goes back on the merry-go-round and the girl gets angry with him again. So he does what children would do in that situation. He throws sand at her. <laughs> so then he runs off the merry-go-round, skins his knees, crying to his mom. And so the little girl's mother comes up and starts calling the mother all sorts of names. And so she just whisks the kid out of the park. So that's kind of how the book gets started. Um, I, I think people reading it today would be surprised, but occurrences like that were pretty commonplace back then. People would call you wet back to your face. They call you, um, you know, a beaner. They, there was a whole bunch of names that they had for us. Um, so that was kind of the America that I was raised in. Consequently, my parents were born in America. So when they were growing up, um, they were teenagers in the fifties and things. And, and, you know, my father wore clothes like James Dean. My mother wore poodle skirts and angora sweaters. So they're, they were very much bobby soxers and things like that because what their parents understood was for my children to succeed in America, they had to emulate the majority population. So they didn't speak Spanish back then. They dressed very Americanized. They were raised as Americans. So when my parents had us, it just kind of trickled down. By the time you have a third generation come into play, they forget the native language. They forget the customs. We weren't raised with, um, we were raised with very few Latin traditions. We were very Americanized and, and speaking English was one of the ways where you didn't stick out. So we went to um, Catholic school and there I went to school in a very, um, mixed neighborhood. So we had all sorts of different cultures there, but we all ascribe to the melting pot theory. So all the little kids in that grade school were Americanized. If they were Asian, if they were black, we all 
kind of bought into the American dream because that's what our parents were teaching us. So we never noticed prejudice when we were in school. We were all different colors in Los Angeles. It's always been a melting pot. What happened later on in America, which I'll go into later, is that when we had all these cultures come in in the 80s and such, that changed the game very quickly. So no longer could we overlook the fact that people looked different that were part of the culture. They were starting to behave differently. And there was such a great wave of different cultures coming into America that it kind of made the melting pot boil over. Um, and that's kind of what we're dealing with today. Um, it's interesting because I was raised as a Mexican-American. Um, and then when we started doing Ancestry.com, the genealogy stuff, I found actually that I'm more Spanish than I am indigenous. So you can imagine my whole life, I was thinking that I was a Mexican-American. And then when Ancestry, when we got our results, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm more Spanish than Mexican. Well, that had never been modeled to me. So I don't know what a Spanish person in America is supposed to be like. Um, writing the book Coconut has been a great adventure for me because it forced me to co confront a lot of racial issues that I had ignored throughout my life. And it's it's been a great adventure because I've come across people that are like, well, didn't you ever think about this from being a minority perspective? And I was like, I was raised to succeed in America. Um, so I never had to confront that. So um, it, it's it's been a nice, nice journey. Okay. Uh, now, there are many listeners from around the world who might know of the evolution of multiculturalism in the United States, a country, like you said, that was supposed to be the melting pot of races. But in spite of this idea, people are thought of by their race, though we might have come a long way from the use of derogatory terms like wetbacks and beaners and the political term Chicanos that has evolved into Latinos or Latinx today. Yet people forget that the descriptor Latino encompasses disparate ethnicities. In your opinion, are people expected to perform their ethnicity, by which I mean not forget who they are or let others forget? You've given us a wonderful summary of your novel. Can you tell us also about the background of the novel that made all this possible, which you have hinted about, but can you just explain to us these terms, etc.? Because listeners from all over the world might not know this. Well, um, as I mentioned, I, I was raised in America during the 60s and 70s. Um, and when we were in school, we, weren't, we didn't have a lot of role models of what a successful American should be like. Um, I always enjoyed writing. So when I went to school, I tend to do, tended to do well in writing. So the whole ethnicity thing wasn't really part of what was going on when we were growing up, other than we had a lot of Chicano rights things and brown power and and those types of topics come come up. Um, but when we were in school, we were just taught as children. Um, when I got to high school and I started thinking about what am I going to do in my life, within my family, we didn't have role models that had gone to university. In fact, my older brother was the first one in our family to graduate from college, which is actually pretty common with, you know, minority cultures as they become um, 
as they integrate in, into the greater community. Um, so we didn't really have those role models, especially wanting to be a writer. When I told my parents I wanted to be a writer, my father, who was very blue collar, although he was very entrepreneurial, and we had a few supermarkets growing up that he had developed, and we had a fast food restaurant, um, he didn't think that I would be able to make a living writing. So he said, you're going to starve to death. And I remember I got very angry because I'm like, well, why can't I be a writer? You know, what makes me different? But I didn't understand the complexity of what was involved with that. Um, so I went to college and, um, you know, again, back then, America was still all about assimilation. We didn't hear these hiccups of we want to retain our culture. We want to retain our language. We want to retain our roots. That wasn't part of the game. That didn't happen until the mid eighties. Um, so when I was in school, I was, I was still pretty much raised as, as just any American child would be raised. When I got to college, my first journalism class, um, this was when I started experiencing that it wasn't a level playing field. My very first journalism class, I had a professor and I turned in um, an article that I'd written and he chose to use me as an example. And so he pulled me up in class and he said, well, Mr. Padilla, he goes, he said, sometimes when English is your second language, you're not going to understand culturally how the majority popular. And I said, what do you mean English being my second language? I said, I was born here. And I said, and I went to the same schools all these other students went to. I said, so this is not that. And then I realized he saw me differently because of the color of my skin. It had nothing to do with my writing ability. He just made assumptions. So that was when it started to confront me, um, was that it's not a level playing field and there's people that are going to call you up. So that was kind of my experience in college was I started to see that there were these issues that would come out. When I went out into the world to get jobs, that was when I really saw that there wasn't um, a lot of background for minorities in the career that I had chosen. Um, my second job out of college was, um, well, actually, um, let me backtrack. When I got out of school, my first job was for, for a entertainment public relations firm. And that one was just a great introduction to the craziness of Hollywood. Then I went to work for a mental health agency and I was doing fundraising for them. They were in central Los Angeles. That was the mid eighties. So this is when the flashpoint happened in America. We had all these central American refugees come into the country at once. We had all these people coming up from Mexico into America and things changed very radically and very rapidly. So you can imagine me being raised as an American who doesn't speak Spanish. All of a sudden people see me on the street and they make this assumption that I must be a Spanish speaker because of the color of my skin. So when I worked at this mental health agency, it was very eye-opening because I saw what these people coming from these other countries were experiencing when they came into America. Um, and it was, it was disheartening. Um, there's an example that I use in the introduction of the book where our own culture, my own Latino culture, 
question my validity as being a Latino. Uh, we went to a lunch and I didn't have an accent. That was one of the reasons our parents didn't teach us Spanish because they didn't want us to have an accent that could possibly affect our chances for success. So that's why one of the reasons I think they didn't teach us Spanish was they didn't want us to be able to single out that, oh, look at that guy has an accent so he can't be American. Um, so when I worked for the mental health agency, we were out to lunch one day and we had had a Chicano rights activist counselor person there. And so I said, can you pass me the guacamole? which guacamole is like a dip that, you know, Hispanic people eat with tortilla chips. And so she said, geez, man, can't you even say guacamole, right? Because they didn't have an accent. And she says, are you ashamed of who you are? Are you ashamed of your race? And it kind of stopped me because I wasn't ashamed of my race. I wasn't ashamed of anything. I was raised as an American. And I saw that there's people that weren't accepting of that, that it was like they expected that I should behave as a Latino, even though, again, I'm third generation. So it, it, it kind of struck me as raw. But I did see all of a sudden all these people started speaking to me in Spanish, assuming that I was a refugee too. And truthfully, I got a little angry at that because I was an American. My parents were born here. Some of my grandparents were born here, but they were assuming that I was going to be able to have the same cultural traits as they were and to speak the language the same way they did. So that took a while, a while to get over that. Um, after that, I went to work for the Daily News Los Angeles. I started out as an assistant and I worked my way up to um, being a reporter and then uh, an editor and a supervisor. So when I went into the newsroom, I noticed that there was probably only one African-American and I was the only other Latin person in there. The rest were all Anglos. So I saw, oh, you know, not a lot of people are, are getting these positions or they're not in the field yet or what have you. So that was kind of interesting to have that experience because outside of the newsroom, there was all this cultural change going on, but inside it was still the, still the same. So I experienced a lot of that throughout my career, career when I, where I noticed, oh, I'm the brownest person in, in the room here. Um, and that took a while to, to kind of say, oh, you know, you're going to have this probably throughout your career. Because again, when I was in college and when I was in school, it wasn't expected that minorities would go into professions. It's quite different now. Uh, my nieces and nephews, it's expected that they're going to go into professional positions. But back in the 70s and 80s, that was more um, something that was an exception and, and not the norm. Um, so learned a lot during that period of time. Um, some examples of, of knowing that you're a different person in, in the culture um, are when I was at the Daily News, I was a real estate editor and um, I used to go out and cover social events. I would wear a tuxedo and I would take my camera and I would photograph these social events. So I was at an event once um, and when I had first started my career, I didn't have a mustache or a goatee or anything because I wanted to, I don't say look as wide as possible, but I didn't want to stand out. So by the time I got to the editor position, I said, I'm going to grow this mustache back. I'm going to grow this goatee because I want people to see that minorities can be in these positions of authority. 
And so I was at a real estate dinner and one of the guests came up to me and he said, can you give me a scotch and soda? And I looked at him and I said, I'm an editor, not a waiter and stuff. And the guy wasn't even apologetic, really. So that was kind of how America was. So we had a great melting pot, but it was understood that the dominant culture was still going to be a certain way. Um, and so now that we had all these refugees coming in, slowly the country has started to evolve more. Um, I love the fact that within America, we're having all these different ethnicities spread across the country because in the past, they just gravitated toward New York, Los Angeles, Texas, the big areas where they could kind of go with the flow and fit in without being noticeable. They're now going to these small communities in the Midwest and other things. And so these communities, I think, are having a harder time with the influx of immigrants because they are, they've always just been white and some black. Um, so that, that's been interesting to see. But I, I think we're doing better with that overall within, within this country. Now, um, your, as you said, your novel, Coconut, depicts Latino culture. But apart from that, it also considers politics, history, class, and generational differences. And then you've told us a little bit about the first chapter, which is called Bina. And in that, the unflustered logic of a five-year-old uh, is evident as we see the impact of racism and differentiation on a child's playground, as she told us. Now, in the second chapter, you retrace the history of Mexicans in California, who were the rivals of the Okies, or the farmers from Oklahoma, during the Great Recession and the tremendous struggle to get ahead. And a moving line in the book says, people who look down on their past to build a future and refers to the adaptation of Mexican-Americans and their reneging of very strong cultural roots, something of which you've hinted at also in your earlier answer. They, and people who look down on their language and the familia in order to be part of the dominant culture, the right kind of Americans. Uh, now, is the family you describe in your book an archetypal Latino family? And is it part of a hustle and grind culture and shot through with the colliding feelings of ambivalence and pride. You told us a little about your own experiences. Let's talk a little about the book now. Okay. So the characters in the book, um, it's a Latino American family. And so what Coconut explores is it, hopefully it's somewhat humorous, um, but it has humorous and painful examples uh, experiences of a Mexican-American family growing up in America during the 1960s and 70s when Latinos were still being treated as what we say wetbacks despite being U.S. citizens. And so in America, we've, we've seen an upsurge of racism going on within the country yet again, um, but that doesn't deter from what this family is about. And I think because your audience is, is global, um, the expectations of this family are typical of what I think families would, would expect of, of their children, you know, anywhere in, in the world. And that is, is that, you know, the parents want their children to, to be better off than they were. They want their children to succeed. Something that's unique about the Latino culture is the concept of la familia, the family. And the experience with that is, is the family can be a great protector and great nurturer 
it can be something that you can run to when you need a warm blanket, but it can also deter you from success. What happens sometimes in, in the Latino culture, as I, I saw growing up, was that the parents didn't expect that the children would go to college. They were expected to support the family, to contribute to the family. So going out in the world and making of yourself, making something of yourself wasn't as important as protecting and nurturing La Familia, the family. So what happens with the character, his name is um, Aurelio Ori um, Rodrigo. And so he sees what's going on around him because he's an intelligent child and he sees what his parents have settled for. And he sees his, his brother and sister, their experiences. And he's like, I don't want that. I want to have more out of my life than what my parents have had and what already I can see my, my siblings settling for. Um, he meets a character in the book. Her name is Susan Valdez. And Susan Valdez comes from a wealthy Latin family. They are from Mexico and they're visiting America. So he sees that there's a whole other world out there, you know, that's, that's upper middle class. He sees people that have wealth and their skin is brown. Um, so he starts to see, hey, I want some of that. I don't want to have to stay and take care of my family and stay in, in the barrio, which is, you know, your, your local neighborhood. Um, so the the family is is typical in the sense that they have the traditionalism, but it's also typical of what was happening in our country in that time. And that was the children were starting to want more out of life than what they saw their family had, their predecessors, their ancestors have. Um, so within the book, I also touch upon subjects that are typically not discussed in the Latino culture. There's abuse, there's alcoholism. The mother suffers from depression at one point. You don't talk about those things in the Latin culture because the way that the Latin culture views that is those are considered weaknesses. And even though every family has these types of things, it is not something that really we discussed back then. So that I thought was important to put in the book because that stuff that goes on, I don't know if you know how prevalent it is in, in, in your culture, but we're slowly getting to a point now where people are understanding that, yeah, we have mental illness everywhere and we have these other issues. But back then it was kind of typical, but those are things that went on in, in a family. Um, so um, it was important, I think, for the minorities to model the the behaviors of the dominant culture. And that certainly comes across throughout the book. Um, and then when the young son, when Ori decides to go to college, it sets everything in a tailspin um, because his parents are expecting that he's going to stay at home and, you know, and follow in the family's footsteps. And he's like, no, I want, I want to do something different. So that was typical of what was going on in that era. Um, and I think that's typical with, with all, all young generations is they all want to do something different than what their parents were. Back then we had cultural impediments to that, to, to being able to transition from that. Okay. okay. 
Now, in your novel, you also talk about the yearnings of this family and the racism they face in schools with teachers who never praise Mexican-American children. And yet life for the family is better in the United States, as they think when they go to Tijuana in Mexico. Their daughter, Anita, becomes a militant Chicano as a result of that visit. She says, mom and dad push this crap down our throats about how we should be grateful for every little scrap of food we get. But her parents are deferential to a status quo that works against them. Tell us about the activists and the workers in this hustle and grind culture, if I can call it that. Well, it's very interesting because for those people to become activists, they had to have something that they wanted to take action against. And what I learned when I was researching the novel was how many things that were going on in this country that people had a right to be be upset about. Um, in the 1930s, during the Depression, we had something called the repatriation. And what that was, was during that time, America, during the Depression, because everybody was hungry, they decided to get rid of the Mexicans. So they shipped back 300,000 to 500,000 Mexicans back to Mexico. Now, a lot of these people were American citizens and were born here, but the government just rounded them up and sent them back to Mexico. In the 1950s, we had something called Operation Wetback. Again, this time, one million Mexicans were deported to Mexico, and a lot of these people were citizens. Some people were afraid to walk on the street because they were afraid they would get picked up by La Migra, the immigration, and shipped back. Well, so this is kind of the background that the Latinos carried. So when the civil rights movement started in the 50s and then it came to a head more in the, the 60s, people were angry. You know, the, the African-American population was angry. They were tired of being singled out. And, you know, Martin Luther King, he led the impetus to to get them better better lives. So within the Latino culture, we had Chicano power, we had brown power. So that was when the young people started re revolting. And um, we had Cesar Chavez, who he led the farm worker movement, again, trying to get better living conditions for, for many of these minorities. So um, within Los Angeles, we had something called the East Los Angeles walkouts. And that happened in 1968. So Latino students were tired of being singled out and being told, well, you'll be lucky if you get a high school degree. So these young people started picketing in school. They had walkouts and all these things. So that was kind of part of the, the Chicano rights movement. So there, were, there was a lot of change. Um, within the novel, within Coconut, the daughter, Annie Anita, she becomes an activist because there's an incident um, in part of the book where the family goes down to Mexico and they see all this poverty and the children were raised in a kind of a middle class setting. So when they go to Mexico, it really sticks with Anita that not everybody has the same chance to, to live well. And so it kind of sticks in her head. And so when she becomes a teenager, she revolts all that because she sees that it's not a fair world and she wants to change it. So she's a little idealistic, um, but she does some things which um, we would call antisocial behavior because she's tired of, of the Latino culture being put upon. And that was actually very 
prevalent during that period of time was it was just like 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 black people the latino people were tired of being put upon and saying you're going to be second class citizens no matter what so that's kind of a byproduct of you have all these people trying to support the culture but some people are saying we want more Okay, now when Aurelio, the principal child protagonist who we encountered in the first chapter, finally makes it to Columbia University in New York, a local counselor in California tells him that the colour of his skin has opened doors for him. Now we know that diversity and this kind of jargon has always been an abstraction for Aurelio. He's done all the things that other kids have done. Evaluate for us the reductive racial thinking of the counselor. Would you say it's quite typical in America even today? There's a lot of it in the New York Times, articles on this kind of phenomenon. On the basis well, of your it's... book, tell us, yes. yes. <laughs> so it's interesting because what happens is, is Aurelio, it comes time for him to call it, go to college and he realizes he's going to have to get scholarships to go there. So he meets with the school counselor. And what happens in the book with the counselor is actually not a positive thing. When Aurelio goes to meet with the counselor, the counselor who's also a Latin person, the first thing he says to him without even looking at the kid's transcripts is he says, we can get you a, a, a scholarship because your skin is brown. And the, the kid in the book has a high GPA. He's involved in all these you know, school activities and things. And he's he's a shining star. So he gets really angry because this counselor didn't even bother to look at his file. He just says, we can get you a scholarship because you're dark. Because some of these universities want to show they're progressive. So they're going to give scholarships to minorities regardless of their grades. So the counselor, even though he what he was doing was wrong. He did it for the right reasons. He wanted this kid to be able to go to college. So he knew the easiest way he could do it was to get a scholarship for a brown kid. Well, the kid wanted to be recognized on his own merits. And he has has kind of an argument with the counselor saying, I don't want a scholarship if the only reason I'm going to get it is because my skin's brown because, brown because they want me to be a token. So I, I don't know how familiar you are with that concept of tokenism, but, you know, this is in the opposite direction. So it was not a positive thing for the counselor to op- want to offer him a scholarship based upon the color of his skin. So yeah. um, it's a kind of microaggression in that sense. I mean, the, it hurts the sensibilities of Aurelio as well tremendously because here he's been fighting through this you know, this whole uh, system throughout. And we also see a very moving uh, passage in the middle of the book where he has this uh, friend who's Anglo-Saxon, I think, and they have a very good friendship. And suddenly that boy turns on him one day and says that I don't want to make friends with you anymore. This kid is heartbroken. So, I mean, the kid knows full well what he's up against. And also the kind of lucidity of a child's mind. Yeah. And then he comes up against this. Now, we also see a lot of this in the New York Times contemporarily in articles which talk about this kind of phenomenon, etc. It's interesting because, and you brought up a good point using that example of when he's he's a little boy and his best friend decides he's not going to be friends with him anymore because he's brown. Um, 
when the when Aurelio gets into high school, he goes to a disco. And I don't know if you guys had discos in 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 India back in the seventies. <laughs> so this kid goes to a dance hall, and he wants to dance with a girl. While it turns out that she's white, so his her boyfriend confronts Aurelio and says, "What are you doing, wetback? You know, stay away from my girlfriend." And at that point, the character has been through enough things where he gets angry, you know, because he's he's tolerated people calling him these names and putting him down and treating him a different way. And at that point in the book, he's old enough to understand they're trying to hurt me with their words. And the kid lashes out, he punches the guy. Um, and the way that I describe it in the book is that, you know, he no longer felt hurt. He no longer, he just felt anger. And I think that's what happens with a lot of young people as you get to a point where you're tired of defending yourself. So you just get to a point where you want to lash back at people. And, and so, you know, by the time he's, he's ready to graduate from high school, he's worked through some of those issues and kind of put them in their place where he understands they're there, but he's not going to let them hurt him anymore. And so that's kind of the pivotal point for this character is, is to understand that we go through all these things where we're hurt and, you know, people put things on us and, and we have to learn to filter them and say, I'm going to go on and, and succeed in my life regardless. And that's kind of what the character is is confronted with. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much for your time, Manny. And I also want to tell you what a wonderful experience it's been to read this book. And I hope a lot of people pick it up as well around the world, because uh, although we might read about it in international newspapers, but you've brought home to us the kind of society American society has evolved into over the years, how things have got better for minorities, and yet some of the old elements still persist. And you've brought in so many references throughout uh, the his, for the history of the Chicanos and the, what, what are, who are now called the Latinos in the United States. If people follow up on those references, your book could well become a primer for race relations in schools, I feel, or at the university. I wish you all the best for this book and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. And if people are looking for my book, Coconut by Manuel Padilla Jr., it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, I'm sure you have tons of websites over there as well. So um, it's it's available online. So thank you again, Minnie. I appreciate uh, you having me. And I hope that your uh, listeners are able to benefit from some of what I share in the book. Thank you very much. Thank you. Please. Okay, just stay there, Manny, for some time. I, actually, I didn't know that your book, that as an author, you call yourself Manuel Padilla Jr. That's my legal name. Okay. So, but but in my professional work, it was always Manny. So, okay. but if somebody Googled me, they'd put in Manuel Padilla Jr. and that's how okay. it pop up. At, at this point of time, you would never look like a Mexican American. You could well be someone from Wisconsin. <laughs> well, that's because I'm old. <laughs> but, but, but you know, again, because I was Spanish and I didn't know that growing up, my whole life I thought, oh, Mexican American. And then it's like, oh, wait, there's this whole Spanish side. And that really plays with your mind, you know, because you're like, I didn't even think about what it was like to be Spanish. So, right, um, right. yeah. Well, have a good evening. It's been wonderful talking to you.